look to our Lord together in prayer. Now, Father, we're coming not to hear a pastor. We're not coming to get opinions. We're coming before the sovereign God of the universe. We're coming to hear his truth. We're not here to marketing ourselves. We're here to proclaim your kingdom. Draw people's attention, not to this church, but to you. And to allow, Father, for Jesus Christ to reign in our midst. You are the sovereign God. You are the creator of the universe. Humanity has fallen by nature. Inherited the sin of the original parents. And Father, what was desperately needed was this one from the family tree to break in, to die in our place for our sins, which he did, Jesus Christ. Now, Father, you know the needs that are here this morning. You see the struggles that people are facing. You spot those tears and pillows that nobody else sees, feels. You know the highs, you know the lows. You know the hearts, some are calloused and hardened because of experiences in life. Others are very tender, very open to what it is that you want to say and allow for your truth to penetrate. Every heart's different and we've got to be able to swing the pendulum widely enough to be able to minister to needs. And you know those needs this morning that are here. So, Father, we're praying that you would do a great work in our midst, as once again, we're praying that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus, him only, and we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the midst of World War II, and the Jewish people in that concentration camp were hovering together, looking for a way to be able, in the midst of their helplessness, to instill a new sense of hopefulness. It was a cold day, and they were trying to warm themselves the best they could. But what fascinates of us is that while they were hovering together, they did so around a severed tree. The tree had been cut down. All that remained of that tree was a stump. And one after another would try to recite thoughts and ideas that would come from King David's lineage, the family tree of David. And you know what they nicknamed that stump? Jesse's stump. Jesse's stump. What fascinates us about this passage of Scripture now in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 down through verse 16, is that though this promise was delivered eight centuries prior to the time that Jesus Christ's sandals hit the soil of Palestine, here we've got a promise 
in which David's family tree that seemed to be flourishing would be cut down to nothing more than a stump. While the outsider might be looking at it and say, well, that's as good as done, nothing more can be done, and overlook it. God does not overlook what's cut down. God does not discard what other might, people might consider to be necessary to destroy. But God has a way of producing life out of what others might consider to be, for all intents and purposes, death. as these Jews in their concentration camp find hopefulness in the midst of their helplessness at Jesse's stump. You got a stump this morning? What I want to do with you is to draw out three very unique distinctives here found in these verses in the way in which we're going to connect the promised Messiah to his family tree, a family tree that looked like it had been destroyed, severed, as nations surrounding Israel had swept away the Jews one by one by one. But God's not done with that stump. And so what I want to do now is to draw out these first distinctives that are found in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. We're going to put it like this. That number one, as you and I, as we consider the promised Messiah and his family tree. Note first of all with me, the righteous ruler over his kingdom. So now, you're connecting in chapter 4, verse 2 through 6, in our, in our first Advent exposition, that statement, he is the branch of the Lord. He is the branch of Christmas. And now you have reached your point in this fourth Advent Sunday where you're looking at the root of Christmas. And so you begin to develop your thinking, starting with verse 1, where eight centuries prior to Jesus hitting the soil in, in Israel, we're told, there shall come forth a shoot. Nobody's expecting it. Everybody's discarded it. People are walking around it. But there should come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse. Now, when you're reading your Older Testament and you make your way back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, you might recall that there's this situation where King Saul has been told that he will no longer be king. He's being replaced. He's not happy. Meanwhile, Samuel is the prophet, and he's going to have to go and anoint the new king. Samuel makes his way to a town called Bethlehem. You ever heard of it? Been there. It's two, two months ago. And as he makes his way into Bethlehem, there's Jesse. And Jesse now is lining up all his sons who might be the prospective kings, one after another, after another, after another. And one after another, after another, after another. Here's the word, no, you're not the one. Jesse feels as though he's given the best of all, and so Samuel's asking him, but is there anyone left? And he said, well, there's one out in the fields, you see. Start connecting your dots. You've got an overlooked stump. You've got an overlooked son. 
out of the fields and were about to make the family connection. So Samuel has David brought this way, and God is saying, in essence, that's the one, anoint him. And what fascinates me is that the word for anoint in the Hebrew is the same word that we get Messiah from, the anointed one. So now the messianic family tree is beginning to take shape. Link 1 Samuel chapter 16 now to Isaiah chapter 11. You've spotted verse 1. There's Jesse, the father of David. They're in Bethlehem, and now the stump is beginning to produce. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. We're not only getting a branch, we're getting a branch now that bears fruit. Now, once we've got this sort of horticulture, this uh, botanical uh, imagery unfolding in front of our very eyes of the development of the family tree of Jesus Christ that you can trace in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, for example. Now you've made your way, haven't you, up to verse 2. And what I want you to see in verse 2 is that there are three pairings, not one, not two, three pairings that describe the way in which the Holy Spirit is going to be working with the Messiah. So often you and I are thinking about the way the second member of the Trinity related to the first member of the Trinity. I came to do the will of the Father, we are told, you see. But have you considered the way in which the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, related to the third member of the Trinity as well? Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, they work in tandem. And you might remember, for example, when Jesus was at his baptism, and there is this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, whom I well please. What happened then? He was swept away from the heights of spiritual experiences to the depths of, of human realities, into the wilderness to be tempted of the evil one, but he was led there by the Holy Spirit. Now, when you're being tempted, when you're being challenged, when you're being confronted by the spiritual realities of this world, it's incredibly important to be led by the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Notice the three pairings here and think about the way in which they relate to Jesus Christ. Verse 2 is where you're at. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. First pairing, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. In other words, this Messiah, he's going to have to be endowed, equipped with the capacity in terms of wisdom of making the right decisions. He needs discernment. Even when he's led by the Holy Spirit out into that wilderness to be tempted of the evil one. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. But now a second pairing. The spirit of counsel and might. You and I know that it's possible mentally to be able to come up with a conceptual plan, but at the same time operationally we're going to have to have the capacity to execute that plan. He has both the counsel, the conceptual, but he's also got the might, the power to make things work, the operational. He's able to see his plans and then there's a third, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, which now interests you and interests me because a lot of people have a fear of God, you see. 
they might have been raised in a religious tradition in which the fear of the Lord is pounded upon them. What interests me is that here you have the second member of the Trinity who has a righteous, healthy fear of the first member of the Trinity. They are spiritual equals, spiritual equality within that Godhead. It's the fear of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that you can see on the screen here. And what fascinates us about that is that that is the covenantal name for God, Yahweh, which means then that the Messiah has a relational connectedness that is expressed in terms of a healthy fear toward the first member of the Trinity. And now we see how these three pairings tie together in the way in which the Holy Spirit is equipping the Messiah we know it's Jesus Christ who came to this world to die for our sins, A.J. Gordon. An American with an Englishman was with him, viewing the Niagara. When he said to his friend, come on, I'm going to show you the greatest unused power in the world. And Gordon writes, taking him to the foot of Niagara. There, he said, it's the greatest unused power in the world. No. Not so, was the reply. The greatest unused power in the world is the Holy Spirit of the living God. But what interests us, once again, we've said this on occasion with regard to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. If you refer to the Holy Spirit as it, then you develop spiritual pride because you're asking yourself the question, how can I get more of it? But when you view the Holy Spirit as a person, you're not asking the question, how can I get more of it? Rather, he's asking, how can I get more of him? So now, what we see here is that there's this personal element of the Holy Spirit, and he's guiding and directing Jesus Christ into that wilderness to be tempted of the evil one. And out of all of this, you and I have now made our way to verse 3. And in verse 3, we're told, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. It's been reiterated for you and for me at this point. He doesn't want us to overlook this dynamic in the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, is guided by God the Holy Spirit. But then we're told this with regard to him. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now the world might have looked at the Jews prior to 1948 and from eyesight rather than biblical insight, said that that's the extent of it. They just see a stump. But what God is doing is that he is producing. And while other people might see nothing but helplessness, the believer has a sense of hopefulness because God produces life out of stumps. He can do something in your life with what other people might view as to be discard it. And furthermore, he can take someone in your life, and maybe you even feel this way, who has been overlooked like a David out in the fields. Call him in and anoint him. And the Hebrew word for anoint is matzah, we get Messiah from. And here now, he becomes the ruler. With righteousness he shall judge the poor, in verse 4, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Now you're linking Isaiah eight centuries prior to Jesus Christ hitting the turf in Palestine with the book of Revelation. And you're pondering the power of the word. 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I wouldn't say that because Jesus Christ has the power to use words. And God has created this universe through the usage of words. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked, and righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And you're looking at that at this point, and you're saying, I've been to the book of Revelation before. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, I, I, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And you're creating the linkage. And you're seeing the rain. And you see that this one we know is Jesus Christ, whom wise men appeared in Jerusalem looking for. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? He's demonstrating his distinctive nature to his rule, where in verse 1, he is able to say, in essence, I come out of that which has been discarded, Jesse's stump. In verse 2, I am guided by the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In verses 3 through 5, I'm giving you some insight into the way in which I go about ruling, I go about reigning, when all seems hopeless and all seems despairing, and then your mind goes back historically, doesn't it? Remember that scene we've described on occasion? Abraham Lincoln's death. A crowd of 50,000 or so are gathering before the exchange building in New York. Emotions are running high. There's intensity. There's worries of anarchy. When this strong man stands up on a balcony and proclaims, fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are round about him. His pavilion is dark waters, thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne. Mercy and truth go before his face. Fellow citizens, Jesus Christ reigns. And the government still lives. And we need to be reminded of that. When you see the connectedness between Magi appearing on the scene in Bethlehem, where he was born king of the Jews, and a pilot who has cynically placed over Jesus' head on that, on that cross, king of the Jews. So here's the sovereign one, and so that begs the question then, okay, how does he reign? Well, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 give us this ability to be able to connect the promised Messiah with his family tree. And then out of it, we see that this is the righteous ruler over his kingdom. Then verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 give us this second distinctive that as you and I are now looking at this promised Messiah, and we're connecting it to his family tree. Note, second of all, the peaceful conditions of his kingdom. Now, Isaiah's gone bipolar on us. Because in verse 6, 7, and 8, what he does is he takes the extremes of imagery, weds them together, and forces you, and forces me at this point, to consider the way in which Jesus Christ reigns. I wouldn't put these opposites together. But then what God does is that he is not governed by polar opposites. He is sovereign over polar opposites. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. 
the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the otter's den. What's he doing? At this point, in verses 6, 7, and 8, he's telling us, as he moves from the righteous ruler of 1 through 5 to the peaceful conditions of 6 through 9, that this is the nature of his kingdom. This is what you should expect. There's a sense of quiet here. There's a sense of peace here. There's a sense here in which the, the imagery is that of, of, of tranquility. You might recall it. World War II. The prelude to World War II was Chamberlain of Great Britain. Did you see The Darkest Hour, that movie? Well, you might remember the tension between, between Chamberlain and Winston Churchill. Now, Chamberlain, interestingly enough, was Unitarian. And as a Unitarian, he did not believe in sin, the sinfulness of humanity, but the goodness of humanity which made it incredibly difficult for him to deal with Hitler. So much of policies depend upon your view of humanity. Do you believe in sin or do you not? Well, Chamberlain did not believe in sin, so he thought he could reason with a Hitler. And so in the Munich Conference, in the Munich Treaty, he came back to the applause and the acclaim of Great Britain as he would stand before the people and say, my good friends, this is the second time there has come back from Germany to Downing Street peace with honor. World War I, World War II now, so to speak. I believe it is peace for our time, he said. But meanwhile, meanwhile, Hitler was preparing to invade Austria, what we now know as Czech Republic, onward, upward, Poland and the likes. What we need to bear in mind, then, is that there is a tendency in our world for superficial longings for peace. Without understanding the significance of what peace truly entails, that there has to be a victory that is secured for peace to be experienced. That victory is found at the cross of Jesus Christ, where he died in our place for our sins. What is now being depicted here is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ in verses 6, 7, and 8 still to come. And now out of that, then, he gives you the rich doctrinal instruction to how to understand this peace of verse 9. Uh, look at what he does. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, the reader of Isaiah, which arguably is my favorite book of the Bible, along with Romans, the reader of the Bible, or the reader of Isaiah in particular, understands that in chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, what Isaiah has done is that he's depicted that future day still to come, when people from all the corners of the earth converge upon Jerusalem to be taught from the ultimate teacher, the Messiah. In chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills 
And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Drove by the American embassy in Jerusalem back in October. Fascinating the way the epicenter of this world is dealing with these issues at this very hour. And meanwhile, you and I ponder the fact that that stump prior to 1948 would be such that people would be thinking, no way, no way on the face of this earth could it even produce. But now look at how Jerusalem is in such a tense point in time as you see the Dome of the Rock positioned over above the Temple Mount. Islam and Judaism clashing. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal of the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and the resting place shall be glorious. Well, what you're doing with me at this point is that you're making your way up to verse 10 down to verse 16. Because we started with the righteous ruler over his kingdom in 1 through 5. We have then, second of all, noted the peaceful conditions of his kingdom in 6 through 9. But now, thirdly, the universal scope of his kingdom, beginning in verse 10 all the way down to verse 16. And what I want you to do now is to draw a line between verse 1 and verse 10. In verse 1, you and I were introduced to this idea of um, Jesse's stump. As we're pondering the imagery of the Jews during World War II, um, hovering together around what they have nicknamed Jesse's stump, trying to find a sense of hopefulness in the midst of their own sense of helplessness. And Isaiah would remind them in verse 1, there shall come forth, there shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And now you're, up, now you're up to verse 10. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And I find it fascinating, don't you, that the son of Jesse was David. And as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, and I pondered as I was standing on the streets of Jerusalem, um, the gate that he would have gone in when people were out on the streets saying Hosanna uh, and on and on and, and, and shouting out that this is the one who is of the son of David. And then my mind goes back to what Dr. Barry Bites, a former professor of mine who oversaw the preparations of the Moody Bible Atlas, provides in the back of his atlas with regard to maps in the earliest days of Israel's history, and how Jerusalem is at the epicenter of it all. Look at these maps that appear on the screen, if you would. And notice that this first one here that you see, this first one was part of an archaeological find. It was dug up in Jerusalem. Uh, Medeba is the setting. The earliest original depiction of the Holy Land is oriented toward the east, the center of the maps dominated by the Jordan River and, and the Dead Sea. But then there's a second map that has also been discovered. You see that one? Now, 
in this map, what you want to notice here is that there was a Latin manuscript attached to it, but there are three continents known at the time that are drawn on the map. There's Europe, the low left, Africa, right, Asia, above. What they're trying to say is that there is something global in terms of the effect that Jerusalem has upon this world. Because what the first map and the second map have in common in their archaeological findings is that Jerusalem was the epicenter of these maps. Go to a third map and ponder now what appears there. Because in this third map that depicts the four winds of the earth, the world is represented in the shape of a three-leaf clover. But once again, at the epicenter, in the center of that clover, is Jerusalem. And I'm thinking about these archaeological finds as we're making our way down the streets of Jerusalem, and I'm looking at the American embassy, and I'm thinking about the fact that Jerusalem was established as the capital of Israel by David as Jesus would enter in to Jerusalem, and people are calling out that this is the one who is of the son of David. And now that you look at the map today of this world, and you ponder the way in which Jerusalem is impacting the discussions even in the United Nations in this very hour and remains the epicenter of conflict, tension, and, and debate with regard to the geopolitical issues of the global community we find ourselves in. As a Neville Chamberlain would say, peace in our time, for our time, Meanwhile, there's a Hitler bearing down upon, uh, upon Austria and upon what we now know as the Czech Republic and on in, you see, into Poland and so on. No, no peace then, but a peace still to come. And notice the way in which God takes this bipolar world of his, and in verse 10, starts with in that day, and now in verse 11, once again, pulls it together for you, in that day. But now you've gone from uppercase to lowercase. In that day, the Lord. And this carries with the idea of the powerful God that you have. We'll extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant. The remnant that remains of his people. Though it might appear as though it's been brought down to mere stump, what I want you to see here is that there's this future day he's describing when Jews from all four corners of the world, according to verse 12, will return to their homeland. Now, the fascinating thing about that, you see, is that prior to 1948, there was no Israel and there was no opportunity to come home. But as Pamela and I are walking through the airport in Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, there upon the walls I see this statement by David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, 1949, that, where he had said that Israel's policy, quote, consists of bringing all Jews to Israel. We are still at the beginning. Unquote. Nothing about that. There are no Jebusites around today. There's no Hittites around today. There are no Ammonites around today. But there are Israelites. God 
keeps his promise. And if the evil one couldn't thwart the first coming of Jesus Christ by babies being put to death under the auspices of Herod, then he will attempt to thwart the second coming of Jesus Christ by bringing about a, a Hitler who could attempt to annihilate the Jews and keep all these things from happening in Jerusalem. But then you ponder the establishment of Israel as for statehood historically on the timeline as it relates to World War II. And you see that God has got this historical, universal, global plan as he's putting all the pieces together for you and me to understand. And so in this promise... He looks at the Jewish populations globally at this point and says, I will take those who are scattered, and the scattered will be regathered. The Feinberg Center. Now, Dr. Charles Feinberg was a brilliant Jew. One writes, he was so intelligent that he could continue lecturing to his class without missing a syllable while writing a note to his secretary. How did this brilliant Jew come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Just after Dr. Feinberg graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Pittsburgh, he lived in an Orthodox Jewish household. The household had a Sabbath Gentile, that is, a Gentile woman who was hired to serve them on the Sabbath. And though Feinberg was not aware of it, this woman had taken the rites of purification simply so she could bear witness in that home. Feinberg was attracted by the quality of this believer's life and began to ask questions. And although the woman could not give him all the answers, she took him to Dr. John Solomon, then resident head of the American Board of the Mission to the Jews. And Dr. Feinberg was led to Christ. And he, in turn, equipped generations of students to become professors and missionaries and pastors. Two of his sons, John Feinberg, Paul Feinberg, became professors of mine. Messianic Jews, helping students to understand the significance of the fact that God takes a stump and bears fruit. Now, Verses 11 and 12 deal with the fact that God has taken those who are scattered and establishes that they are regathered. And he's not done yet. There's more to come. Verses 13 and 14 takes you to the next step. Not only do we see in 11 and 12 gathering the scattered, but in 13 and 14 we have the healing of the divisions. You see, the tribes to the north and tribes to the south were divided from one another, conflicted. You ever been in conflicted family relationships? This was the ultimate conflicted family relationship. And so what we're seeing now is that he takes this family, as he looks at this family tree, and takes the conflicted ones and he creates a new sense of oneness. The jealousy of Ephraim the tribes to the north shall depart. Those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. Judas, Judah, shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, you see. 
And so now what we find is that not only are the people regathered, but furthermore, the people are unified because they were divided, but there is now this sense of oneness. There's this sense of community. There's this sense of coming together. Hey, do you own a Jeep? I own a Jeep. And when Jeep owners identify themselves with one another and communicate with one another, there is known as the Jeep wave. Did you know that? I'm reading it to you. Now, there's this guy who loves his Jeep and wants all Jeep owners to be able to communicate and have a sense of community. Every, notice how communicate and community get connected together, you see. Well, there is to be a community of Jeep owners who communicate on the roads to one another. You maintain community as you communicate. Hey, owning a Jeep, he says, doesn't just open up the opportunity to traverse the path less traveled. You also gain a kinship, a oneness among all Jeep owners. And this oneness, this fellowship, this camaraderie is on display every time you pass another person driving a Jeep in the form of the wave. The Jeep wave is an honor. It's an honor bestowed upon those drivers with the superior intelligence, taste, class, and discomfort tolerance to own the ultimate vehicle, which makes me wonder, how did I get mixed into this crowd? The rules for the Jeep wave, where we communicate in order to establish community, are pretty straightforward. All Jeepers are responsible for upholding the tradition to communicate via the wave. And if a fellow Jeeper waves, you are required to return the wave, even if that Jeeper is driving a Grand Cherokee. Now what we're saying here is this. What God has done is that he has taken people who were alienated from one another and unified them. So in verse 11 and in verse 12, he takes the scattered and they're regathered. In verses 13 and 14, he takes the alienated and they are unified. This is part of his promise plan. This is what's coming our way. And what he has not done in his first coming, it will be completed in his second coming. And now you wrap it up, don't you, with verses, with verses 15 and verse 16. Because not only in 11 and 12 does he gather the scattered, and 13 and 14, he heals the divisions. But in 15 and 16, he removes the obstacles. He removes the obstacles. And notice it begins Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D from the Hebrew. The Lord will will utterly destroy the tongue of the of sea of Egypt. And will, he, evidently he does the jeep wave, you see, because uh, will wave his hand over the river with a scorching breath, strike it in uh, seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And if you're trying to understand the prophecies of the Scripture, one of the basic principles is that you allow history to interpret prophecy. When you're reading the book of Revelation, look for all the Old Testament imagery that's found there and allow it to inform you as to how better understand what's still to come our way subsequent to 2018 as we inch into 2019 and beyond. Because what he's now saying as he brings this to a conclusion in verse 16 is that there is from the four corners of the earth this Jewish remnant, 
Jewish believers like Dr. Feinberg, and they are making their way back, and there will be a highway from Assyria. A highway from Assyria? Well, he's using the language of the nationhood of that time period. What he's describing here is people from, from Egypt and people from Iraq and connected to Israel. They are, they are making their way back. For the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt, and if all seemed hopeless in Egypt, and God led them out by parting the waters, and all seemed hopeless to Israel as Jesse's tree was brought down to a stump, we see how God sovereignly pulls all this together when in Matthew, in the opening verses of chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you and I are told, in Psalm the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And furthermore, in Jesus Christ, the ultimate Davidic king, enters into Jerusalem to die for your sins. And mine, Donald Gray Barnhouse, told the story of several oak trees that he once planted by his house. All but one grew more than 20 feet high. A particular one was damaged, died at the soil line. But he writes that the root system was intact and a shoot came up. He was going to tear it out, put it in a new tree. But a horticulturalist told him that 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 shoot was going to catch up with the other trees. you got to believe, he said with a smile. After two years, get this, it was six feet high. After four years, more than 12, Barnhouse tells us it had a fine branch system. So don't despair over the dead look of things. Don't be put off by a stump. There are times when God's kingdom looks like it's whacked down to nothing. But the shoot of Jesse will thrive. As Jews gather around a stump, in the coldness of the air, looking for a way to remain warm, and they nicknamed it Jesse's Stump. Where you see, what God has done is he has taken literally something from nothing, brought a Messiah into this world via Bethlehem to die on Calvary. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus and him alone, and you embrace the whole idea of what this family tree entails, you have eternal life through Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Let's stand together. There's a richness, Father, in the book of Isaiah. It's hard to even explain. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from, from his roots shall bear fruit. 
we've seen the fruit. And the ultimate Davidic king of this ultimate family tree is Jesus Christ. So help us to connect dots between the promise of eight centuries prior to the Bethlehem story. Help us to connect the dots from, from the Christmas story to the Good Friday story. Help us to connect the dots from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. Help us to connect dots from Easter Sunday to our Lord's return. And help us to see the master plan at work and how you make a master plan work in the lives of each one here. And for this, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.